Thank you, everyone. That was awesome. Really, really appreciate you guys setting us up in that way. And uh, good morning. My name is Justin Sitzma. Uh, I'm on the pastoral staff here at Courtright, and it is my... I'm not going to say my privilege to give you this message, because this message is challenging. And so maybe it's not my privilege, but it is an honor, as always, to, uh, to give God's Word and, uh, and preach from it this morning. So one of the most confusing and messy parts of church life is that we are an interconnected community. It's messy because it involves our friendships, our social and volunteering life, our service, and even our finances. It's where we go for spiritual guidance and so, so much more. And so it makes sense that when someone in a congregation does something totally out of line with the Christian life, that we feel really conflicted about how to deal with it, yeah? You know, how hard do you come down on them? Do you give them a second chance? How about a third or fourth or fifth chance? What are your categories for when it's okay to confront someone? Is it some egregious public error what about when you observe some like minor character flaw, but you're friends with them and maybe you should address it with them? What is the line for when a community needs to protect itself from someone? How do we as the body of Christ discern how to deal with these things? This can be done in destructive ways, abusive ways, and it can be done very poorly in that regard but it can also be a beautiful, restorative thing when done well. So today is about how we deal with sin and conflict in the church. I'm not going to lie, this is not a very sexy sermon. I'm not expecting a bunch of you to come up to me afterward and be like, wow, that was a really encouraging shot in the arm, but I really do hope that we're able to hear what God is saying to us. Today's scripture reading does contain some mature subject matter, so if you have little ones, just be aware of that. It does deal with um, a specific sexual sin that the NIV header calls incest. So again, that might be sensitive for some of you, and I just wanted you to be aware of that before we jump in. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week and finish out the latter few verses of chapter 14. Or sorry, not 14, 4. Um, so let's just pray a minute before we read. Guide us, God, by your word and also by your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth may we find freedom, and in your will we will we discover peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. So chapter 4, starting at verse 18. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? So he's kind of setting up where he's heading here in this next chapter, chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out your fellow, from your fellowship the man who has been doing this? 
For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, I am with you in spirit and the power, and in, and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, and they are sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are, not, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. If any of you have a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I, I say this to shame you. It is possible that there is nobody among you why sorry, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough? to judge a dispute between unbelievers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord. That was like a little half-hearted for this. I, I kind of get why. I kind of <laughs> get why. It was a little half-hearted response, though. A couple things right off the bat. If you're reading along in, uh, in a, like a proper Bible or even online, you'll notice that I stopped kind of mid-paragraph. And I think that's actually just fine because um, a lot of the grammar and paragraph breaks, they're all made up you know, long after Paul wrote this. Um, thematically, it makes sense for me to stop here uh, at the end of verse 8, where Paul mostly closes out this section on sin and conflict in the church. There's also um, another kind of breaking point where in two weeks from now, when we continue this series, um, there's kind of a different section that uh, Alex is going to address on human sexuality, and that's uh, a whole other beast that we don't have time to get into today, because there's enough content here, as you can see. So, I decided to channel my inner Alex here and alliterate my structure. You'd be so proud, Alex. <laughs> so, three things that we're going to explore. The offense, the order, and the offer. The offense that took place 
and the offenses that take place today, the order and nature of how they responded and how we ought to respond, and the offer for all those who have fallen short of God's glory. So starting with the offense. So we're given these two cases, uh, two case studies, we'll call them, of sin and conflict in the church. One is a sexual sin. A member of the church in Corinth was having sex with his father's wife. Now, presumably that is his stepmother or something like that. This is something condemned by both the Christian and Jewish law, as well as in Corinthian culture, evidently. And the Corinthian people were not exactly known to be sexual prudes, so that's saying something. In fact, they were world-renowned for being the exact opposite. And so Paul is speaking incredulously here. He's outraged by this. Even secular writers in the Roman world regularly decried this sort of relationship. And this was not just one kind of like little one-time error uh, of judgment, but this was clearly something that was ongoing. It's likely that uh, it's likely the o- that only the man was a part of the church, and the stepmother was not. Otherwise, we probably would have heard some kind of condemnation of her, of both of them. It's likely his father's wife was younger. It's a second marriage. Often that happens, and I mean it happens today too, but it happened probably even more so back then. Some scholars theorize it's possible that he may have even married his father's wife, stolen her from him, so to speak, if such a thing were even possible, and it was. There's also some intimation that the man in question is a wealthy patron of some kind, which is, kind of explains the church's unwillingness to speak out against him. Whatever the details, Paul seems most chiefly concerned with the church's response. In fact, he seems far more outraged at their response than actually at the man's sin. The Corinthians are proud, Paul says. Some interpreters suggest that this is better stated that they are complacent. Still other thinkers believe that what Paul is saying is that they are proud and arrogant of this maybe newfound enlightenment, that they have transcended culture to the the degree that they will just tolerate absolutely anything and everything. So we have this man's sexual sin, a kind that transcends all cultures and value systems as being wrong. And coupled with that, we have the church's sin of being overly permissive and complacent. And then in chapter 6, we see this other issue arise, unethical behavior toward fellow Christians, particularly in the form of lawsuits arising from the inability to to come to terms between one another. It is a direct connection with the previous chapter where Paul talks a lot about judging one another. So let's just take a moment and deal with this one as well, two different case studies. Paul says these words at the beginning of chapter 6. He says, If any of you has a dispute with the other, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? That last little bit there kind of gets at the heart of the matter. Paul is grieved. You can hear it by all these rhetorical questions he's asking. He's grieved at their lack of discernment and their their inability to make wise decisions. What's worse is that they're bringing these mundane cases within the church to Gentiles who have no context 
for Christian living. Now, the problem is not that he's going, that they're going to like, you know, secular courtrooms. Like we all have maybe had to do that at some point or another. The point is that he's, they're, they're able to deal with these things internally, and yet their squabbling brings them to a place where they are going to people that are not going to understand their issues with one another. They're going to look at them and be like, y'all are a bunch of weirdos, weirdos living in that commune over, over there. Like, I don't understand what's happening here. Shouldn't you be able to deal with this by yourself? But what's worse is the fact that they even have lawsuits against each other. The fact that they don't have the wisdom to discern is one issue, but the fact that they can't get along and are cheating one another uh, in their business deals or otherwise, that's a real problem. And Paul is just brokenhearted. You can, you can see it as you read. He's brokenhearted over this. Paul says, I say this to shame you. Previously in chapter 14, he goes, I, uh, sorry, chapter four, he says, I, I don't say this to shame you, but here he says, no, no, I'm saying this to shame you. He says, no, no, I've got a real issue with you all here. This might not sound like too much today, but in an honor-shame culture, shaming someone was a pretty big deal. It, was, it meant that their communal reputation was on the line. One quick related aside that kind of reinforces this point. Um, was anyone else curious as I was reading that little bit where Paul's like, don't you know that you will judge angels? Was anyone was like, what was, what's that about? Any, was I the only one? Okay, you guys should be preaching this message, I guess. No. When I, a couple months ago, we were going through um, all of 1 Corinthians in preparation for this series, and I, and I read that, and I was like, no, Paul, I, I don't know that I'm going to judge angels. Like, that is just not something that I presumed to be a thing. <laughs> but as I dug a little deeper... Um, it could be better said, are you aware? He's kind of posing a question. The passage continues with the theme of ruling and judging over the world. And he extends this idea to all created beings, that we will all rule and reign as co-heirs alongside Jesus. And he's highlighting the triviality of their squabbles. He's saying, set your, set your sights higher, people. You are meant for far more than these earthly issues. As I kind of unpack these issues, it sort of occurred to me that it's kind of comforting in a way that the church in Corinth struggled the way it did. Sometimes we can have this really like romantic and idealistic picture of the first century church as some model of like church piety and purity. It wasn't. It really, really, really wasn't. And while we should never celebrate these issues in the church, there's this sense of solidarity and kind of being like, okay, they didn't have it all together and neither do we. We're in good company. That doesn't mean we can't do better. Anyway, my question for us to consider is that I don't see us, at least to my knowledge, placing lawsuits against one another or being permissive towards such a bizarre situation as a, uh, a congregant you know, in a relationship with his father's wife. So what are the issues of our day that Paul might speak to um, and maybe our broader church culture about? Perhaps it might be the inability to speak up when there is infidelity. You know, we don't properly address the elephant in the room because it's too awkward or delicate. Or maybe it's sexual abuse or pornography use or unethical business dealings or pervasive gossip. The lists could go on and on of what Paul might speak to today. I think you could argue that undergirding a lot of this is actually something that churches really struggle with, which is greed. They're letting 
sometimes these things persist because someone is of a certain status and they're giving a lot of money. And it's much harder to call someone out when you know that it's going to have a significant impact on how you can support one another in a community, especially a community of new believers where there, you know, there wasn't like a paid staff person in the classic sense that we have now. It's more about how are we going to support one another? And if that person leaves, all of a sudden it's like the poor and marginalized are going to be left out. It's really challenging. This could go for any issue that we are aware of that we allow to fester in the church. But the issue itself, the sin in question, it does matter, but that is actually not Paul's primary concern. Paul's primary concern is with the purity and the holiness of the church and our witness to the world around us. The church's reputation is on the line. What does it say to the city of Corinth if they are allowing this sort of thing to happen? So now we turn to the matter of what on earth would we do with this? What should the church in Corinth have done? And what would we do today in something similar? So this is the order. So there's a very real tension to address in how we deal with these sort of issues in a church. You could say that as God's gathered people, we are called to be welcoming, loving, embracing. We are, that is a mark of Christian community. But where do we draw the line on certain things so as to reflect Christ's holiness? So the tension is in some way Christ's holiness and Christ's grace. And I recognize that those things ought not be polarized, but they can be in a way. It's worth confessing that very often churches have done this poorly, perhaps even courtright at times. Some churches have erred on the side of legalism rather than grace, or they've been selective about the sins that they permit. And sometimes the church has, on the other hand, been unwilling to deal with heinous sin, even abusers under the guise of forgiveness and grace. And this is shameful. My hope and prayer is that by following the scriptures here that we can better reflect the heart of Christ. So using chapter five and some of the examples Paul gives, this is what he says. Firstly, we need to acknowledge, acknowledge. In verse five, one, Paul names the issue. He acknowledges that what has been going on is wrong. It's hard to address an issue if you can't get specific, if you can't be honest with yourself. One of the first steps in every recovery program is to admit our wrongdoing, to get specific. Secondly, we're called to mourn. 5-2. In verse 2, Paul is upset because they're not mourning, but rather they're proud of their permissiveness. Mourning allows us to grieve when someone has caused such a deep rift in the community because it hurts. It, ought to, it, it feels difficult and messy, and we don't want that to be the case. It's not as it should be or ought to be. It recognizes that our actions are not done in separate little silos, but rather our actions in community affect the people around us, even when we don't think that they do. Thirdly, we confront it. We confront it. This is also in verse two. In this case, confronting meant putting this person out of community. Now, 
This was clearly ongoing, and he was unwilling to receive any sort of accountability for his actions. And so this was their last resort. For many, confronting would, will look a little bit more like Jesus' words to us in Matthew 18, to privately go to someone, bring an offense to them. If they respond well, fantastic. If they refuse to address it, bring a few others along. If they still refuse, bring church leadership into it. And if they still don't respond, the suggestion is that they're no longer part of church fellowship. Even though Paul didn't have a copy of uh, Matthew's gospel, he must have heard this saying of Jesus because this seems like a guiding force behind what Paul is saying here in his principles. So from here, if the person is responsive, awesome. Like that, that's the good news. It's like when someone calls you out on something and you're like, oh, yeah, that sucked. I shouldn't have done that. Let me make it right. You know, like, good. Then we're back, in, we're back in business. This is awesome and beautiful and wonderful. But if they continue, there's another step. And this is sort of the stuff we don't like to talk about in church, but we're going to talk about it anyway. We're all adults here mostly, and we're going to do that. So step four would be to expel them, or uh, the kind of the, the fancy word is excommunication. Either the person addresses the sin or the church or in Courtright's case, session would have no other choice but to excommunicate the person. Paul uses very intense language in 5.5. He says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. That's so, that's so intense. What does that even mean? Without getting into the rabbit trails of all the scholars that have talked about this for centuries and centuries, this is in essence what Paul is saying, that they are no longer considered a child of God. I mean, think about that for a moment. If you've gone through every possible opportunity for them to kind of like, you know, fess up and, and deal with their stuff, and they just refuse, 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 what choice do you have really? They're no longer considered a child of God. Therefore, they belong to the world and the evil one who rules it. It's kind of like when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He's not, Peter's not actually Satan. He's effectively saying, you have in mind the things of this world. The hope, though, is that that person will destroy their flesh. And I don't mean this flesh here. I, but the sin that is engulfing them so that, and this is critical, so that they may be saved. This is a hard pill to swallow, but what Paul is saying is that this is for their good. They might actually recognize their need for Jesus and their community of faith. The concern Paul has is that if you don't do something, it's going to infect the rest of the community. The way that yeast spreads through dough, and you see him use this metaphor a little later on in the chapter. Like many people, I learned how to make sourdough over uh, COVID. Anyone else? Yeah, a few of you. Um, for those who don't know, it starts with just flour and water. That's it. And then after a little while, it catches the natural yeast in the, in the air and it permeates the flour. And all of a sudden, it's this active living thing. It was always shocking to me when I, uh, would, I would do my daily feeding while I was getting the starter going, and it would tell me to throw away everything except 25 grams. 
which is like a very small amount, like a couple, like a, like a spoonful basically. And then you, you know, put in 100 grams of flour, 100 grams of water. And sure enough, after eight to 12 hours, this mason jar was like almost ready to burst with the life that was in this thing. Now, Paul is using this metaphor in a more negative sense. He's saying that little 25 grams of sourdough starter is like infection and it's infecting the church. My sourdough starter is like probably dying in my fridge right now. Otherwise, I would have brought it in to like, you know, give like a visual analogy. (laughs) Paul uses this metaphor because he knew the power of sin. He's saying, don't let it infect the body of Christ by not addressing it. The next piece, and again, this is another hard pill to swallow. It's disassociate. Paul says not to associate with that person. A better way to say this is to not mix indiscriminately. I can feel you feeling comfortable in your chairs. I want you to to just lean into that discomfort for a moment and just see where we go here. This is far different from what some traditions would call shunning. I think like Jehovah's Witnesses do that, where if you are out of their community and they see you at a grocery store, they walk the other way. They, They will not talk to you. On the other hand, this is also far different from carrying on as if nothing has happened. Both of those would be an unkindness. I think what Paul seems to be getting at here is about protection and boundaries. Sometimes the best thing to do is to create some healthy distance with a toxic person. We've all done this. Every single one of you, I can guarantee, has done this, whether you've named it or not, whether intentionally or not. We just struggle with the thought of the church doing it. When someone has harmed us, we are likely to keep them at an arm's length. We don't ignore them, but we recognize that while love is unconditional, our fellowship with that person can be, at times, conditional. Think about how hard this would have been in the church of Corinth. There's only one church. Here in Guelph, if this happens to someone, they'd just be like, oh, okay, well, those people don't like me. I'll just go down the road and I'll find another church, right? Um, With really no recourse for anything. They just move on. This would have been painful in this original church. They would have been removed from their social safety net and their fellowship and community. I think it's best to actually illustrate this a little bit um, because it's hard to deal in the abstract here. It's hard to be like, oh, that just seems unfair. But let's, let's unpack it a little bit here. So um, this is an example. This is fictional. Think of this as like a parable. So suppose a person discovers that a congregant is embezzling money at work. This congregant also happens to be on the finance committee at church. Not a good mix. So the person who discovers this lovingly, gently calls out this individual. They make excuses and kind of justify themselves and try to make it appear like there's no issue. They're in denial. The next time, the person brings along a few others and they try to have a conversation again. And, and, and this time, they bring, uh, you know, they bring issue with and examples of how some of the church money has been handled. The congregant, the congregant is still unwilling. They will not hear their side. They make excuses. So now an elder gets involved. They're faced with a tough decision. If the congregant does not confess, they will need to be disfellowshipped. This person refuses to concede, and so the church mourns. They grieve this, and they're faced with the painstaking decision to excommunicate them. A boundary has been set. They have caused harm. They have caused a breach in trust. They have refused accountability. And now we need to be protected from this person. This is what we would call a last resort. 
when there is a process for how to deal with stuff, it's actually more loving because it's clear. And I don't know that the church, I'm saying Big C Church, I don't know that the Big C Church has always been particularly clear on this. Some denominations do this better than others. I think actually that our society often has more of a clearer path for discipline than the church does even if it's informally. You know, think about the swift judgment that came in light of, uh, in Hollywood, in light of the Me Too movements. How many of those people that had credible allegations put against them ever worked a day in Hollywood or were relegated to like just the worst possible jobs and roles ever? A lot of them. That's the same thing. And it's good and right and just. Now, going back to this parable. If I run into this person, I see them at a store, walking down the streets, I will be loving. I will be friendly. I will be kind. I hope I will embody every single fruit of the Spirit. I will inquire about their life. I will show that I care about them, but I'm probably going to be a little guarded. This is a good and healthy thing to have boundaries. If you've never set a boundary like this in your life with someone who has harmed you, I'd encourage you to do so. It is not unloving to protect yourself. Let me say that again. It is not unloving to protect yourself. In fact, it's the opposite. It's freeing. The hard stuff's over. You guys okay? No? (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) There are other concerns that Paul brings here that I don't really have time to get into this morning, but I just wanted to briefly highlight one other piece of this passage that I think is worth mentioning. It's a little bit of an aside. It's connected, but it's a little bit of an aside. Paul talks quite a bit about judging, judging those who are inside the church versus those who are outside. He says, rightfully so, that our responsibility is not to judge those outside but we are to look inwardly within ourselves. Christians are notorious for doing what? The exact opposite. That we look at all the people, all those sinners and wherever, and you know, like, that's, that's not what Paul says to do. He says, we're to look inside. It's, it's like, again, this is following the, the Jesus principle of looking in your own, getting, taking the plank out of your own eye. We pass judgment on our culture, but we won't address our own stuff. That's a problem. Paul's desire for us is actually that we could be in deep relationship with those outside the church. And it's kind of hard to do that if you're just judging them all the time. His desire is that we would have an open table with friends of other faiths or friends of no faith at all. The issue is with people claiming to have the spirit of God inside them and then turning around and acting in no way like the Christ that they claim to follow. Paul says not to be in fellowship with people like that, that it's going to cause damage to the church's witness. And we've seen this over and over again. What would it look like for the church, the big C church, if we refused to tolerate something like abuse in the church? What would it look like if we stood up to that? Our witness would increase. People might trust us again. Finally, and very briefly, I promise, we come to the offer. This is the extension of grace offered to all who hear. That we recognize that it's impossible to be a perfect community. We are not a perfect community. We have failed. 
We have fallen short of God's glory. We have all wounded one another in various ways. We are all struggling, failing, and sometimes succeeding to be faithful image bearers who collectively make up the body of Christ. In um, chapter 5, verse 7 and, 80, uh, 7 and 8, Paul says this. He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. At the Passover, all the Israelite, as the Israelites were preparing to escape from Egypt, they were to sacrifice a lamb and they were to make unleavened bread. They were called to do that. Bread without impurities that come along with yeast that developed in the ancient Near East. That Passover tradition continues on to this day. And Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain for us for the purifying of God's people, the church. We, the church, are called to be a new batch of dough, free from impurities. This is not something that we do together, or sorry, not something that we do on our own, but rather something we must do together. We are called to be one. We are called to be holy we do not rest in our own ability to do this, however. We rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus, who is victorious over death, invites us into his perfect communion with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he invites us to be refined by that process day by day, week by week, moment by moment. To the Thessalonian church, Paul says it like this in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Sanctify, to, to make you pure, to make you holy. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. That is a far different promise from us just striving and trying to get better. I'm going to do better. Even as a church, collectively, we're going to do better. We're going to do better. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. We just open our hands to him. This is the offer that we would continually allow God to refine us day by day as the body of Christ. God is faithful and God will do this. Thanks be to God.